Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Just in case you want to listen to this broadcast again, this is episode 249. We are continuing our family Bible studies in the Gospel of St. Luke. We're in Luke 13, and today we're going to be looking at the parable of the leaven. And I call this parable the overlooked parable. Last episode, we looked at the parable of the mustard seed, which is fairly well known, and it's generally what people concentrate on. But right after Jesus talked about the parable of the mustard seed, he talks about the parable of the leaven. And I just give you a, a heads up, stay with me through this broadcast, especially the last two or three minutes, because as we apply this, the parable of the leaven is absolutely critical for parents and parishes who are concerned about the striking percentage of youth falling away from the faith. And this parable contains some truth that we need to recover. But let's get to the text itself. Luke 13, starting in verse 20. And again, and by that, again, this is a second parable, Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And you might say, well, this is kind of a pretty harmless type of parable. It isn't. This is revolutionary. It's so revolutionary that people miss it. And people have been missing... <laughs> Jesus, so to speak, for 20 centuries, because he comes in such a humble way. Now, leaven in the Bible is usually an image of something evil, but you always interpret things according to its context, not just according to how the word generally is used. And in this instance, Jesus is using leaven as something good. And basically, it's something small, seemingly insignificant, that you could take a teeny bit of yeast and have this huge effect in about 50 pounds of flour. It permeates everything, just this little pinch of yeast. So what is this parable teaching? Here it is. This companion parable of the leaven teaches that the worldwide transformational effect of the kingdom will take place in a hidden and an unseen permeation of all facets of life. In other words, imagine those measures of flour or meal, those, that 50-pound sack representing all of life, not just the church, not just you or your heart or your mind, all of life, everything in life, and just this pinch is going to cause the kingdom to permeate the entire world. This is the kingdom strategy. And it's overlooked, just like this parable is overlooked. Now, here's your $10,000 question of the day. By what means does the kingdom of God spread and transform all facets of life? What's the means? And here's the answer. You, every single believer 
in Jesus Christ is the means by which the kingdom of God silently, often unobserved, in a very humble, simple way, can permeate the entire world with the knowledge and life from the kingdom of God. Now, somebody might say, well, our country's culture is anything but being transformed by that kingdom leaven, and that's true. We are in the middle of a deterioration of our culture and faith life, and our youth are falling away in massive proportion. So what's needed? It was interesting that not too many years ago, the answer to our cultural decay was a movement by the name of the Moral Majority, founded by Jerry Falwell back in 1979, And it really became an engine of the Republican Party trying to recover our culture, trying to promote pro-life. And it was very well intended. But it was interesting, while I was in seminary, I was wondering about its long-term effects. And I know this sounds like heresy, and I'm not a liberal progressive Democrat, so just relax. But I really wondered about the idea of imposing Christianity, Christian morals upon people in a certain sense when they're unwilling. In other words, doing it by force or through the ballot box or dominating the political machinery and causing a cultural change through that. Now, don't get me wrong. I participate in politics. I vote very faithfully and I vote pro-life without question. But I wrote a paper in seminary entitled The Moral Minority, and unfortunately I can't remember anything about what I wrote other than the title, The Moral Minority, that actually a minority in a more humble and quiet way might be able to bring about the cultural change that the moral majority had tried to do, because the moral majority has really crash-landed, and I'm afraid personally that part of that could have created a boomerang effect if those uh, kind of scary people running for president of the United States have an opportunity to impose their will on the country. And so, in other words, um, there's another way. There's another way to permeate society. And I'm recommending a twofold step so that the kingdom leaven can permeate our culture again. Now, remember, (laughs) I'm saying that you are the means that God wants to use, okay? It's not primarily any political party, any machinery, any technology, any business strategy and money and everything else, you absolutely you, and for you to be used in the transformation of our culture, the first step is for you to be transformed. And I dare say, and I think most people would agree with me, that a deep spiritual transformation is generally not taking place amongst our spiritual formation programs for youth. Yes, there's a number in many good places, good religious facts are being imparted, 
but that deep transformation where your life is actually changed to become more and more like Jesus is only taking place in a minority of our youth. Now, the reason I mention this, it is critically important. In fact, it is utterly important because Jesus said to his people, you are the salt of the earth. In other words, you are the preservative. So if something's going wrong in our culture with our society and country's morals, before we begin looking at somebody else or somewhere else, Jesus said, you you are the salt of the earth. You, plural, church, are the salt of the earth. So perhaps we should look within before we look without. A little bit further in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, Jesus said, salt is good, just like leaven in this instance. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the land nor for the dunghill. Jesus is saying that if his people don't have the preservative and impact from their lives upon the world in which they're living, you can't just throw salt out on your garden because nothing will grow. It's one of the ways to prevent things from growing. It's not even good for the manure pile, Jesus is saying. So this is very serious stuff. And and I think we need to get away from spiritual formation processes, no matter how, you know, deeply embedded they are, and, and ask ourselves, how can spiritual transformation take place in youth and adults so that a person really comes to know God? And this is my quote from Pope Benedict that I constantly refer to, and basically I'm writing a book based on this quotation. He says, knowing Christ is an encounter, not with an idea or with a project in life, but with a living person who transforms our innermost selves. So in other words, as we become transformed, then we can become agents for the transformation of our world. That's step number one of my two-step becoming leaven for the kingdom of God strategy. Here's the second step. I believe that we need a very important change of vocabulary that might enable a change of concept of life mission for the laity. You know, it's very important how we use words, and I'm very aware that, you know, Steve in a single broadcast isn't going to change the overall vocabulary in the Catholic Church. I am calling for a change, but you, mom and dad, are capable of making changes tonight. You can say, powwow, this is what we want to do, and you can make that change in your family while we perhaps wait for a wider change. But here's a common question that people uh, say. Say, like, you're, you're a mom, and somebody's asking about your son, and uh, they ask you, does your son have a vocation? And the answer is always, always, 100%, without any doubt whatsoever, yes. Now, the way that question is generally asked is when you say, does your son have a vocation? 
it usually means, does he have a religious vocation? And every single believer, according to Jesus, has a religious vocation to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and the leaven of the kingdom to all facets of life. Now, I understand, you know, you could say, does your son have a priestly religious vocation? That's great. But it's a misleading statement to say, does your son have a religious vocation? And if he doesn't have what's commonly termed as a religious vocation, now this isn't the theology of the church, but this is what goes on in people's minds. And what goes on in people's minds is critically important. This is what happens. Well, if I don't have a religious vocation, then what do I have? A secular vocation. And that is why our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Because if you think you're off the hook, because if you're not in the small minority of those with a religious vocation, namely a priest, religious sister, or even a deacon, but then, well, then you have a secular vocation. Now, I'm going to tell you something heretical, um, but I'm overemphasizing a point. But priests and sisters and deacons are not primarily the salt of the earth. They are primarily the salt of the church. Their job is to be salt in themselves, to convey it to all in the church so that the entire church is salt of the earth. And the laity, particularly, are not salt of the church. They're salt of the entire earth. So rather than saying, uh, do you have a religious vocation, just simply says, what is your vocation? What is your calling? And if you look in the early chapters of Genesis, which are so instrumental for basically figuring out all of life, but we see that Adam and Eve were called to be image bearers of the living God. And, and what, what were they imaging God? What were they doing? Well, they were called to worship one day out of seven and the other six to work. So our work and our worship, not just for those who have the very narrowly defined religious vocations, this is the human vocation. God is calling the world to himself, and we're to regard all of life, all of our worship, and all of our work as part of our calling as Christians. So you're saying, Steve, that my daily Monday to Friday work isn't secular work? Uh-uh. No. If you're a follower of Jesus, your so-called secular work isn't secular. It's religious. It's, it's leaven. It's salt. It's light. And no matter what you are doing, it is God's primary means for spreading the kingdom of God. We're making a huge mistake by saying the 1% are called to be salt and light and everybody else, we just go about your business. No, as you go about your business, you are being salt and light. There's a wonderful passage in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It says, for we are his workmanship. This is Ephesians 2.10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It says we are his workmanship. It's very, it's a, 
instrumental to look at the Greek here. It says when we are his workmanship, that Greek word is poema. We're like a poem that's all fit together. The parts of our life, even though we kind of stumble and find our way, it has a purpose. It has a plan, even before we were born. And we were called to do good works in whatever sphere of life we were called to. But we walk in that. But God has already prepared that beforehand. He knows how we are made. He knows our talents. He knows what type of work we'll be doing in life. And that work, wherever he places us, he places himself to quietly transform society. That's the moral minority, isn't really? You don't need the whole world. You don't need 51% of the voting public. You need Catholic Christians who are totally faithful to Jesus Christ in whatever sphere of life God has placed them. I'm just going to give you three C's, um, words that begin with C, as just examples of this, but you could multiply this so many different ways. How about being a coach? I dare say coaches are so instrumental for youth, and a lot of young men and women look back to their coaches like, wow, what a difference that coach made in my life. I had lunch once with Bobby Bowden, who was the Florida State University football coach. He was the fourth most career-winning coach among all college coaches, but it was interesting. The lunch I was with Bobby Bowden, he was a speaker at an event promoting Christian fatherhood. He was very much a part of the Association of Christian Athletes, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And see, you can be a coach and have a tremendous effect upon the young men who are part of your football team. Bobby Bowden told me that a lot of the young men coming on his team had never met another man when he said no, absolutely meant it, and that they had to stop doing whatever they intended to do. He was being a father to these young men. And then if we're talking about coaches, I better include Clemson University nearby and Coach Dabo Sweeney. If you go and just Google Dabo Sweeney, you'll find a headline, he coaches Clemson's football team with a father's heart. And again, so many young men growing up in a home without a dad, he is being salt and light on a football team. He is being leaven, okay, how one man can make a tremendous difference on an entire football team and saying that virtue, Christian virtue, can make for a national championship team. And if you're a young man, a part of that, you will never, never outlive that. This is how change comes about. And of course, when you win a national football championship by following Christian principles, you have a platform, you have a voice, and people listen. Here's another C, and I'm trying to pick things that people think, oh, this is a secular vocation. No, there are no secular vocations for Catholic Christians. It's just, there are none. We are all called to serve Christ in every dimension of life and work. But here's one I think that um, has an outside effect, and that's camp counselors. I know myself when um, I finally... uh, I shouldn't say I did anything. Jesus got a hold of me after a uh, 
stint in my teens as a prodigal son, I kind of looked back, and there were markers that came to mind where God had put good Christian witnesses in my life. And actually, more than and uh, at the time, any Sunday school teacher or any minister was a camp counselor. He was the best outdoorsman in the whole camp. He was the best athlete counselor in the whole camp. And he was also the most outstanding Christian in the whole camp, but he hardly talked about it except in Sunday chapel. And I'll tell you, he had an outside effect. I can remember some of his very brief talks in an outdoor chapel on Sunday morning decades ago, whereas, you know, a lot of times people have a hard time remembering (laughs) a sermon or a homily by the time they hit the back door of the church. Camp counselors have an outside effect. This would be one way to have that kingdom leaven permeate, and if you have the financial means to become a camp owner, this is a tremendous way to impact lives. Now, here's one. You might think it's impossible to be a faithful Catholic, salt and light, leaven-bearing kingdom messenger, but how about a congressman? You'd say it's impossible. Well, okay, What's the most horrible example of Catholicism that I can think of? It's a Catholic politician sitting up in Washington, D.C. and getting near a microphone and saying, I am personally opposed to abortion, but. And see, this is a perfect example of what happens when you view yourself as having a non-religious vocation because you're not a priest or a nun, or a religious person. You see, a congressman, a Catholic congressman, is a Catholic congressman, and you don't divide your personal life, your faith life. Now, you don't go around preaching. That's not your job, but just like the camp counselor I told about, there, there can be certain lines that you stand for, certain things you work for. I'm, I remember the Honorable Robert Dornan, now retired congressman, Catholic congressman, he was such a pro-life hero, and I remember hearing him say that nothing in his congressional career came close to satisfying his fulfillment in life than passing laws to protect babies from abortion. Um, I want to give you what, in my mind, is the most outstanding Protestant example of being salt, light, and leaven for the kingdom. And that's a man by the name of Abraham Kuyper. He, he was just one of the most unusually effective salt and light type figures in his generation. He lived between, um, well, he was prime minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1905. He was a member of parliament he founded a Christian university. He founded a Christian political party. He was a prolific author. He was a minister, pastor, theologian, and he launched a new Dutch reform denomination. And it was a key teaching of Abraham Kuyper that God had a role in every sphere of life. And as Christians, we're to be involved in all spheres of life. But there was a problem. Abraham Kuyper's state church that he separated from had separated from the Catholic church, the true vine. 
And then because that was declining, he separated from the separated church and started another denomination. But long-term renewals don't come from fractures and separations from the true vine. St. Clement's Church in Rome, it's a basilica. In the apse, there's a picture of Jesus on the cross, but it's almost depicted as the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, the restored tree of life. And then the vine goes out and encompasses all these various spheres of life. And from Christ's sacrifice on the cross and then through what that has brought forward to us, those graces in the Eucharist, the true vine goes out and starts transforming all the world as it starts with transforming God's people. This is the plan. To me, uh, St. Clement's in Rome is my favorite church in all of Rome. And just Google the image of that apse in St. Clement's, and you can see whatever circle of life God has placed you, he's placed you there to be leaven in the kingdom. Now, the Barna Research Group has come out with a very exciting new study just this week. Now, the bad news is 64% of youth with Christian backgrounds have fallen away, and that's bad. But their new study focused on those who stayed faithful and why. And there are three statements that characterized those who stayed. Listen carefully. First, my church does a good job of helping me understand how to live out my faith in the workplace. In my church, I regularly receive wisdom for how to live faithfully in a secular world. God is at work outside the church, and I want to be part of it. These are the statements that characterize the resilient believers in a youth culture that is pulling people away from the Christian faith. This is what keeps people in. They are basically yearning and desiring to fulfill this little overlooked parable of the leaven. They want to be leavened for the kingdom of God. And, he, and they say, the ones that stay, my church does a good job helping me understand how to live out my faith in the workplace. And parents, you want to be a part of conveying that type of wisdom because the young people who are not falling away, this is what characterizes them in a very unique way. I'm Steve Wood, your host. You've been listening to episode 249 of Faith and Family. Remember what I've said this broadcast. God bless. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.